We're studying the life of David, essentially going through 2 Samuel verse by verse and chapter by chapter. This morning we're in chapter 13, 2 Samuel chapter 13. Our text is verses 1 through 19. The subject is kind of heavy. David's son Amnon deceives his stepsister Tamar into feeding him a meal so that he can sexually assault her. The title of our message, Don't Feed the Hand That Bites You. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, as we always do, or at least always should. Uh, we desire, Lord, that it would reveal Jesus to us, that, that we would see him reflected in it. And by that, we're talking about the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for us and rose from the dead, that we might have eternal life. Lord, the scripture says that your Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so we pray for a supernatural understanding of your word. It's not so much the words that are spoken here, Lord, as the words that are brought to our heart by the spirit. Those realizations, those understandings of who Jesus is and what he wants to do and what he's already done in some cases that we haven't realized. Lord, we're excited because you promised that you'd be in the midst of the gathered church and that's who we are this morning, Lord. And so I pray that we would know that your presence has been manifest here. It already has been in the worship, Lord, but also in the word. And that uh, having left this place today, Lord, we would be more like Jesus and more likely to share Jesus with others. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, as we in our hearts bow down before you. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. Years ago, we, uh, for some crazy reason, we used to like to have Siberian Huskies. I don't know if any of you have had that particular breed of dog, but they're a very kind of independent dog that uh, doesn't give you much love and gives you a lot of grief. Uh, but uh, we liked them for some reason. Uh, and uh, we would get uh, our Huskies, uh, usually as adult dogs, from a local breeder in Squaw Valley, uh, the Amahawk Kennels. Uh, and they had all these crazy names, you know, uh, and, and uh, it's kind of fun to get into that whole dog thing. But what we used to like to do is either just go up on our own with the kids and visit the kennel, uh, or we would, and you kind of think we're crazy, but we would take the dogs back up there to visit with their relatives. And, and uh, you know, that's just uh, kind of the thing that we used to do. So uh, it was a lot of fun because any, at any one time there at the Yamaha Kennels, there'd be 16, 17, 21, 25 Siberian Huskies, and there's just something uh, fun about that, you know, especially when she'd let them all out in the yard and they'd attack you, uh, but uh, in a nice way, you know, but they're fun, and uh, we had our favorites, and one of them was, uh, we called her Ginny, her name was Amahawk's Genuine Reflection, and she was just a cute little uh, dog and, and just, you know, hanging out up there, and we were real sad one time because we went up there and, and Ginny wasn't there, and we said, well, where's Ginny, and... and um, the breeder told us that Ginny had, you know, typical of, of Siberian Husky, she had uh, broken out of her kennel or jumped over it or somehow she'd gotten out and she ate through the wall of the shed where the food was kept and she literally ate herself to death. She just ate and ate and ate and ate and gorged herself until she died. Now, I didn't know an animal would do that. Uh, but I guess they do, if uh, some of them at least. And so I started wondering about that this morning in light of the study. I thought, I wonder if there's people who can eat themselves to death. And I came across Adolphus Frederick, known by Swedish children as the king who ate himself to death. 
On February 12, 1771, after partaking of a banquet consisting of lobster, caviar, sauerkraut, smoked herring, and champagne, he moved on to his favorite dessert, semla is how I pronounce it, it's probably wrong. It's a traditional bun or pastry made from semolina wheat flour served in a bowl of hot milk. One or two portions would have been plenty. Uh, He had 14 servings of that after his uh, other banquet. And uh, history says he died shortly thereafter of severe digestive problems. Uh, Now, I'm going to have to watch my spaghetti intake at this point. I didn't know I could kill myself eating spaghetti. Uh, Now, if you have to die, that's a way to go, you know, but... uh, uh, I I've, I've felt like I was going to die before after eating spaghetti, but uh, I just can't quit. Now, you may never gorge yourself to the point of death on food, but there is something at work in you that has a voracious appetite that can never be truly satisfied. The Bible calls it the flesh, and if you're a Christian, you know that you're in a serious battle against it. One key strategy in dealing with this enemy within each of us is found in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. I'll just read it to you. Uh, Part of the text says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Our text this morning in 2 Samuel is going to provide us with a pretty graphic illustration of what happens when we do make provision for the flesh. We'll see David's son Amnon make provision for his flesh to fulfill his lust for his stepsister Tamar. The result is a sexual assault that will ultimately lead to Amnon being murdered by Tamar's brother Absalom. It's graphic for a good reason. We need to be reminded about the dangers of making any provision for the flesh. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your flesh will consume every provision you make to fulfill its lusts. And number two, your flesh won't be content with any provision you make to fulfill its lust. So let's take a look. First of all, we're going to be in verses 1 through 14 to talk about our flesh being a consumer of everything that we provide for it. The Bible speaks frequently of the flesh, but it also uses another term, the old man. For example, in Romans 6, 6, you read this, knowing this, that Our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now that's a mouthful, but talks about the old man. And then it uses this phrase, the body of sin, which would be a synonym for the flesh. So you see in that verse, Romans 6, 6, there is an old man and there is the flesh. So there seems to be a distinction. The old man has to do with our natural birth. It is what we are at birth. Since we are descended from Adam, we inherit what he passed on. Adam passes on to us a dead spirit and a sin nature. My natural state, my natural standing as a human being is what is meant by the old man. Uh, In a funny sense, we get it from our old man. We get it from Adam, our original old man, uh, having sinned in the garden. Now he passes on to us a dead spirit, 
we're born dead in trespasses and sins when it comes to our spiritual life, and we have this sin nature that uh, you see in any newborn, any toddler, any child, any adult, actually, too. But, you, you know, we hide it better. Now, the old man was crucified on the cross with Jesus. So why do I still struggle against sinful impulses? Well, that's where the flesh comes in. One commentator offered this definition of the flesh. He says, Scripture uses the term flesh in a morally evil sense to describe man's unredeemed humanness. That is, the remnant of the old man which remains with each believer until each receives his or her glorified body. And so the flesh seems to be something that is left behind after I receive a new nature when I am born again. My old man is crucified, but he leaves something behind. And this flesh resides in my as yet unredeemed physical body. It is the tendency, the inclination, the impulses left over from my old man that impel me to use my physical body in sinful ways. Because my old man was crucified with Jesus and is dead, the body of sin might be done away. The word might doesn't mean maybe, it means the flesh has been done away with. So again, I ask, if it's been done away with, why do we struggle with it? Well, done away with means to render inoperative. It's a word that would be used to describe making something ineffective by removing its power of control. The closest thing I can think of is be like unplugging something. To, to uh, do away with something, you unplug it, and so it's still there. It, it could be operative, but you have rendered it ineffective. Since my old man is dead, it need not respond to any of the impulses or inclinations from the flesh that is left over. When I realize the spiritual fact that my old man was crucified with Jesus, it removes the power of control from the flesh. It is this knowledge that short-circuits my impulses and inclinations to yield to those things entrenched in my physical body. Until this physical body is redeemed at the resurrection or the rapture, I'm going to struggle with what's left over, the flesh. It remains within me. It is unchangeably evil, but knowing that my old man was crucified and that God has cut that power cord... I can always decide to say no to sin and yes to God. And when you read through the book of Romans, as we're studying on Wednesday night, we'll get there to chapter 6, 7, and 8. This is the heart of our victory over sin, to realize, to reckon, and to understand what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ so that we can say yes to God and no to sin. Now, I therefore choose each day and many times each day to either make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts or to make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. It's a decision that I have to make. What we're going to see this morning is there are a lot of subtle deceptions that we might use to make provision for the flesh as illustrated by Amnon. Before Amnon actually sins, before he sexually assaults Tamar, 
He has already made tons of provision for his flesh so that what he does there in the bedroom is easy for him. And this is where the battle rages in our own minds as well. And so let's take a look at it beginning in verse 1. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick. For she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. Amnon was David's eldest son by his wife Ahinoham, the Jezreelite. He would have been supposed to be the heir to David's throne as the oldest son. He held a position of privilege. We have a privileged position as Christians. As wonderful as that is... We still must be careful because, as you realize, sometimes privileged people take advantage of their position or they tend to take it for granted. We cannot believe that our privileged position is enough to guarantee automatic victory over the flesh. We must decide. We have to choose. But no matter how difficult it may seem, unless we have some overriding physiochemical problem, we can always choose to say no to the flesh. Now, Tamar was David's daughter by his wife, Makkah, the Jeshurite. She was therefore Amnon's stepsister. Tribal cultures are a little weird to most of us. And by tribal, I mean a culture that demands its members marry within the group to folks who are closer relatives than we might expect. The book of Genesis, for example, portrays Sarah as marrying Abraham, who is her half-brother, without criticizing their close relationship. This text this morning treats the marriage of a royal prince to his sister as something that would have been unusual but possible rather than immoral. Now, those who try to point to the Old Testament, therefore, to condone things like polygamy and even incest, they fail to consider that the Israelites were a tribal people. And there are different things going on in that kind of a grouping of people than in a general population. We are not a tribal people, uh, and so we cannot appeal to those arguments uh, in order to say that polygamy and incest and things like that are biblical. Now, we're told Amnon loved Tamar. We're going to see that this love was really lust, so why call it love at all? Well, I think the Holy Spirit is pointing out that we can fool ourselves into believing that our lusts are just normal human appetites. That way we can start making provision for them without admitting that it's sin. Now, don't get me wrong, we do have normal human appetites, and the flesh is not those normal appetites. The desire to eat, uh, the desire to have sex, the desire to drink, you know, those things, those are all normal human desires. But sometimes we will have an abnormal drive or something that is beyond what is normal that we will want to fulfill. And we can convince ourselves that, oh, that's just the way I'm made. That's just who I am. I have this drive. And even though fulfilling it is, you know, maybe sinful, but it's probably not because it's not really lust. It's just love. I'm, I'm in love with that person. I'm, I'm not lusting after that person. And so we rename things so that we don't call them sin. It'd be better to just call sin, sin from the very beginning And then you wouldn't get involved going any farther, would you? If Amnon had woken up and he says, man, I really shouldn't have feelings like this for my stepsister. It's just not the right thing. 
I need to deal with that. I need to repress that. I need to do whatever I can. But instead, he decided he was in love with her. And as a result, it set a lot of terrible things in motion. And so sometimes we just need to look at our lives and say, hey, this is not love. This is lust. This is not a normal appetite. This is an abnormal appetite. And if I will nip it in the bud now, then it won't go any farther. Now, uh, Amnon began to make provision for this lust uh, in our next verse, verse 3. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah. David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. The words friend and a very crafty man don't really go together. Uh, If your children come home and they say, hi, I want to introduce you to my friend, a very crafty person who's going to get me in all kinds of trouble. You're not too excited about that. And so it's very interesting. Uh, You can be one, but not both. You can't, you can't pull this off. And so what we're seeing here, this is another, another subtle provision for the flesh to have a crafty friend around to give sinful suggestions. And so, uh, Amnon set himself up. He thought, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to come up with any crazy plans, but I know somebody who will. Jonadab, because he's crafty. And so I'll just have him around. He can suggest some things to me. They're not really my ideas. It kind of gives me an out. Well, no, it didn't give him an out because it was Amnon's choice to have Jonadab around to suggest plans that could make provision for his lusts. And so, so if you've got something that is really kind of in the dimension of being a little bit beyond the normal appetite, you're, you're understanding that it's a lust, but you're, not, you know, you're afraid to call it sin, then the next step is you kind of have things on the periphery of your life that will feed that. You think, well, you know, I'm struggling in this area, uh, but we have to have this, and we have to have that, and I'll just, I'll just be careful about going there or doing that or thinking about that. And really, you've just invited a crafty friend to hang around who can make suggestions for you, uh, and you think, well, I didn't do it, uh, my crafty friend did it. My crafty object or whatever it is did that for me. And so you see, I hope you see this morning how easily we are drawn away and make provision for our flesh way before we do anything about it. Verse four, he said to him, why are you the king's son becoming thinner every day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab makes the classic argument that we have told ourselves many times, you deserve it. That was his approach. So much of our making provision for the flesh occurs when we convince ourselves we are denying ourselves or being denied someone or something that we essentially Deserve. And by deserve, I can mean this, that we're in a situation and we think, God, you know, I'm in a situation here where some need of mine or some desire of mine is not really being met and it's not fair. I deserve to have it met. And so maybe it can be met this other way. And again, nothing's happened yet. This is all just stuff that we're thinking about, gathering around, providing for the flesh, never thinking that anything will happen. Verse 5, so Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed, pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Now, you'll notice that Jonadab doesn't finish his thought by saying, 
And when she does, you can force yourself upon her and sexually assault her. He doesn't even say, and when she does, she's going to give herself to you and you will have illicit sex out of wedlock. It's implied, but it isn't spoken. A danger inherent in making any provision for the flesh, especially in our thought life, is that we don't think we will follow through in reality. We're only thinking about it. We're only, uh, you know, uh, planning it out, but we're never going to do it. And we try to satisfy the flesh by giving it just a little, indulging ourselves short of committing the actual sin. But here's the revelation. It's already sin to be thinking about committing sin. Uh, and and this, is, this is all fascinating. The, you know, Jeremiah said the heart is deceptive and wicked. And even as Christians, because we have the flesh at work in our lives, we can so easily deceive ourselves. And, and I know in my life I've done things just like what Amnon is doing in terms of making provision for the flesh, thinking I'm not sinning or I'm not going to sin. Uh, and it's, it's really very profound to see that this starts in such a small way and gets to be such a giant thing. Verse 6, Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, anyway, you get the idea. Come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. I'm slower to criticize David as a father than I once was. Uh, For one thing, Amnon is an adult. We're not talking about uh, a teenager or a 12 year old. I mean, he's a full grown adult. And there were other folks around when Tamar went to cook for Amnon. Maybe David should have been more aware, but that's not really the point of this text. If you want to do a study about what kind of a father David was, uh, that's, that's for another time. And you might come to the conclusion that he wasn't a very good father uh, to his multiple families because of some of the crazy things that happened in his family. But the point of our text isn't foc- it's not focused on David at all. It's focused on Amnon as an illustration for us uh, so that we will understand the fingers are pointing not at David, but at anyone and everyone who makes provision for the flesh. And so verse 8 Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. And she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which he had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Yes, this is a huge red flag, but let's never criticize Tamar. She is presented throughout this account as totally innocent. If she was naive, how is that a fault? Besides, she may have been much younger than we imagine. I think when we read these stories, we think of uh, some folks that are in their mid-twenties or something like that. Tamar may have still been a very young teenage girl at this point uh, because girls were married young in those days and she was as yet a virgin unmarried 
probably maybe even betrothed to uh, an individual from another kingdom because that's what you said. But, you know, she was, I would guess, certainly less than 20 years old and probably maybe only 15 or 16. Uh, and so let's not blame Tamar. Please don't be one of those people who think sexual assault can somehow be blamed on the person who was assaulted because they somehow should have known better. Being naive and lacking discernment, even being immodest, doesn't translate into being responsible for what happens. There's kind of a lingering attitude in our culture that in certain situations, if a woman gets raped, she was really asking for it by the way she dressed or the place she went or those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, we're afraid to admit it, but I think a lot of times people still think that. Uh, it's, it's not the victim's fault when they are sexually assaulted. And all it does is reassault them when we suggest that it is. Uh, and so please uh, be thoughtful and compassionate. Amnon was willing to destroy someone that was pure and innocent in order to satisfy his own lusts. The flesh that we're talking about is not just immoral. It's not just immoral, it's what we would call amoral, meaning it has no moral restraint, no principle whatsoever. It is terrifying the lengths an amoral person will go to to gratify him or herself. Being immoral is bad, don't get me wrong, but at least you have an idea that you're bad and you've done something wrong. There might even be some guilt. When you're amoral, you don't care what might happen or what does happen to anyone else, you only care that you are gratified. Verse 11, Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me. No such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. This was disgraceful and it would bring shame. We don't hear words like that much anymore. Someone said people should be ashamed of how shameless we've become. Just a few years ago, the, the hint of an affair somewhere in their past would kill a person's presidential candidacy. And then we find the president having illicit sex in the White House and no one seems to care. It doesn't matter anymore. Our society is crumbling. Nothing is disgraceful or shameful. The current example of this would be Charlie Sheen. Some of you are at least familiar with what's happening with Charlie Sheen, the actor. He is in your face about his immoral, amoral, disgraceful, shameful life saying that this is what he was in a sense, made to do, to party and to, to just rip through people left and right. That's what he was made to do. He has absolutely no remorse or shame whatsoever. Uh, and, and I'm not saying our whole society is like that, but it's the kind of train wreck that we're headed to. And there are a lot more people like Charlie Sheen than we would like to admit in terms of being ashamed and finding things that are disgraceful. Now, she also said it was the act of one of the fools. Now, a fool in the Bible isn't a simpleton. We're told in the Bible, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
It can also be translated, the fool has said in his heart, no to God. And so when you're called a fool in the Bible, it means you're a non-believer or you're a believer who says no to God. Wow. You ever think about that, saying no to God? Those of you who are or were parents, there's that moment in, you know, when your little toddler or however old, you know, you tell them to do something and they look right at you and they say no. And they, they don't say this, but they might as well say, and what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and, and we have a tendency to look around and say, would you consider this defiant? Uh, would you, is this a rebellion? You know, I, I think maybe you misunderstood me. You know, can we reason about this? But no, it's on. I mean, that's it. No. And, and, and so, you know, that's what we can do to God. Uh, you know, that's what Amnon was doing. He was saying, no. God said, don't do this. He spoke really through Tamar, giving him all kinds of reasons why not. And Amnon just said, no. Forget it. Sure, there's a way out, but I'm not going to take it. And in that defiance, he was acting like a non-believer who didn't have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. Verse 14, he would not heed her voice and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. He had been given this last way out. He didn't take it. It's not that it was too late so much as it shows us the strength of the flesh. It has a power of its own. We might think we can indulge it and still keep it under our control, uh, but that's a dangerous path to walk. Now, the act of feeding his flesh was preceded, as we've seen, by a lot of planning, a lot of making provision for it. He didn't just wake up one morning and go rape his half-sister, his stepsister. He planned to do it. He provided for his flesh so that it was easy when the opportunity was there. He had a subtle confidence of thinking himself privileged. He fooled himself into thinking that his lust for her was a normal drive. He had some sort of companion that suggested the sin to him. He convinced himself he deserved what was being withheld. And he didn't consider the final outcome because he thought... He had everything under control. What we're learning here very simply is that the battle is won or lost so often in your mind at the very beginning. Start there with your thought life and bring every thought captive to Jesus. Now, as bad as this story is thus far, it only gets worse. In verses 15 through 19, we see that your flesh won't be content with any provision you might make for it anyway. It's a myth to think you can ever satisfy the flesh. It's never satisfied. Amnon's reaction illustrates total dissatisfaction. Verse 15, that Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get out of here. You might call this the immoral of the story. The flesh never has enough flesh to satisfy the flesh. Verse 16, so she said to him, no, this evil of sending me away, it's worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. The flesh is not remorseful. It has no checks and balances. It is altogether wicked. It will consume until it kills and destroys. And then it will want to either continue to do it or to do it all over again. Verse 18, now she had on a robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel, and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors. 
that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. Sexual assault is an awful thing. Please teach your daughters to be discerning. Teach your sons to be respectful. And then see that they are properly chaperoned. That's not the point of this story, but another important strategy for making no provision for the flesh is to avoid any and every opportunity to indulge in it. Amnon was not satisfied. In fact, he was totally dissatisfied. It's to illustrate for us that you cannot ever satisfy the flesh. It will always be there just as voracious as it ever was. It's not like when I eat a pound of spaghetti and I can't eat any more even though I want to and then I'm satisfied, sick, but satisfied. The flesh isn't like that. It never has enough. It wants more and more and more and more and more. The dog that I started talking about, Amahawk's genuine reflection, her death actually a genuine reflection of the sin nature in us. That if, if I can eat until I die, I will. Because I want more and more and more and more and more. There's no happy ending to this story. As we said earlier, Absalom is going to end up murdering his brother Amnon. And it will set up eventually a conflict between David and Absalom where Absalom tries to take the kingdom from his father. And Absalom will end up himself being killed. It's a terrible, terrible story. We, however, we can experience a very different ending. We quoted from Romans 6, 6 earlier. The next verse, Romans 6, 7, reads like this. He who has died has been freed from sin. Our old man was crucified. He is dead. The word freed introduces another metaphor by comparing the Christian to a slave. Death obviously freed a slave from his master's control. The master could bark all kinds of orders, but a dead slave can't respond. And so it, it, it cuts that power. If you're dead, you can't respond. We are set free from sin because the old man has died with Jesus on the cross. Now a new man, a free man, lives. In the 1960 film Spartacus, Kirk Douglas played the escaped slave who led a brief but widespread slave rebellion in ancient Rome. At one point in the movie, Spartacus says, death is the only freedom a slave knows, and that's why he's not afraid of it. Our old man has ceased to have power over us just as a master ceases to have power over a slave when he is dead. And so I talked about earlier that we every day have many decisions to make. And what the Lord wants us to know, the teaching of the Bible, is that when that decision comes, that our old man is dead, and the only problem we face is whether or not we want to actually make provision for the flesh that's left over, or whether we want to make no provision for it. And usually... We don't think we're making provision for the flesh because we're doing it all in the mind, in these subtle ways that creep up on us until finally we're involved in the very thing that we thought we would never do. And that is the lesson of Amnon. And so the, the solution, the Bible just says, make no provision for the flesh. Just don't do it. And when I read that, I think, well, how? Well, no, it's not a how, it's a command. The Bible never asks us to do something we cannot do. 
Our point today from the tragic tale is that we are already sinning before we act if and when we are allowing our minds to be deceived like Amnon was. And so a lot of times we want want three steps to doing this. And God says, no, there are no steps. There's just the understanding that this is possible. You don't have to say yes to sin. You're going to be tempted. The flesh is there. There's the world and the devil and all of that's happening. He said, but your old man is crucified. I've rendered this situation inoperative if you will just what? Believe me and make no provision for the flesh, but instead walk in the spirit. We're to have the mind of Christ, the Bible says. We're to bring our thoughts captive to Him, the Bible says. And in that famous Philippians 4.8 passage, we are to think on what? Things that are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, and of good report that are virtuous and praiseworthy. Win the battle for the mind. Let's pray.